beautiful to us. You are beautiful to us. Your radiant being shines forth and we gaze upon you with awe this morning. Lord, would you just make yourself, your being, your presence come across through my words this morning that our hearts would become increasingly captivated with you. Do the work, Lord, that all of us need in our hearts this morning. Only the things that only you know, that it only can be done in hearts that are open to you. We love you, Lord. We honor your word. We thank you for it. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Merry Christmas. It, it, it remember that it still is Christmas for another 11 days now, <clears throat> to be technical. I know everybody's tree goes out to the road the day after Christmas, but not mine, darn it. <laughs> we are celebrating all 12 days. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I've, I've thought a bit about the foster care system lately because we have a couple of different friends and families that are involved with taking care of foster children. There's Actually, over 400,000 um, children in the foster care ch- um, system in the United States alone. So there really is a deep need there for, um, for foster families and for adoption. And one of my hopes that as, as a, is as a church, perhaps even in this new year, that we would find ways to support, contribute to uh, families who adopt or uh, foster children and get involved in some ways. And so there's some stuff, details forthcoming about how we might get involved with that system as a church. I'm very excited about it because um, adoption is perhaps one of the most powerful uh, reflections of Father God's heart. It really is a tangible way of expressing who God really is in his fatherly heart. Psalm, Psalm 68 says this, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. It says, God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing. So to father people is who God is in his very nature. And the gospel of Jesus Christ is actually about God himself visiting an orphanage called the world to adopt children into his family. And I want to talk about uh, adoption today from the perspective of Uh, The scriptures, the gospels, we're going to be looking at the passage in Galatians. Galatians is a bit of a tricky book to kind of follow all of the arguments of if you just kind of pick it up and don't really know anything about it and read through its five chapters or six chapters. Um, And we're kind of in the dead middle of the book here. So I want to try to explain what Paul is saying because it's beautiful and the gospel is really uh, is really all captured here in these several verses that we have in our lectionary today. So let's just take it right from the top in verse 23. We read that before the coming of this faith, that is faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, says Paul says we were held in custody under the law. Locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. Now, being held in custody and being locked up doesn't sound like a very positive thing. And that's the point. It's not. And what Paul is talking about here is confinement that he's not talking about only Jews confined to the Jewish law, but he's talking about the confinement of all humanity before Christ 
under God's law, really the universal moral law that flows from God's nature, which we are required to obey, to have fellowship with God. And Paul is um, not giving us a negative portrayal of that law. He's not saying, man, what a bummer, what a drag the law is. Man, that darn pesky law, what a bad thing. No, because Paul says in other places the law is good and holy. The negative portrayal that Paul is painting is of the impossible and frustrating situation in which humanity finds itself in apart from Christ, which is that we are broken humans, we are sinful, we are rebellious, and we are required to keep a law that we cannot, in fact, keep. That's what it means to be held in confinement or to be in custody under the law. It's like being in a prison, kind of. You can't really accomplish what you need to accomplish when you're in a prison, And the problem, as we know from Scripture, is the human heart is in rebellion against God. And no matter how hard it tries, apart from Jesus Christ and the work of his spirit, you cannot keep the law. Okay, so now verse 24, Paul says, so the law was our guardian until Christ came. Okay, so God gave the law. Now, talking specifically to a kind of in from a Jewish perspective, Paul or God gave the Torah which means instruction, the law, to the Jewish people. And it was the, the, the role of the law was kind of like a guardian. Now, the word in Greek is where we get our word a pedagogue, like, which means teacher or instructor. But in the ancient Greek sense of the term, a guardian, that, that was actually a specific role, usually of one of the slaves of a family or one of the household servants of a family played the role of the guardian, the pedagogue. And what they did was they would... They would um, escort the firstborn son or the biological son to and from school to education uh, classes and things like that. And they were kind of a steward of their conduct. So they were sort of a behavioral disciplinarian person who watched over the child until it reached to maturity when the father says, okay, now he's of age. He is able to be free from your guardianship and to uh, follow instruction on his own and so forth. And Paul is likening the law Unto that, a sort of guardian that was set in place. But then he says until. So it was temporary. The law worked as a temporary guardian to kind of put guardrails around God's people to try to help them follow something that would help them. And it was was always the purpose was always to help them remain in proximity to God. It was it's following the law, following um, God's law. No matter what way you look at it, obedience to God's law is always about fellowship with him. It's not dry, follow the rules because I just want to watch you from a distance and see if you can keep them. God wants us to obey him so that we can enjoy a loving relationship with him. So we know that the Jews could not uphold the law, that that guardian was in place, but they constantly disobeyed that guardian because the problem was not external. It was internal in the heart. Okay, so but that was all for a period of time time. It was temporary. Until what? Until Christ came. Okay? So the law felt like a disciplinarian, not because it was bad, but because people stink at keeping it. Okay? So Paul is painting essentially a picture of a desperate situation. A desperate situation. The inability to keep God's law and enjoy fellowship with him. Until. Until. Now, the rest of the verse. Until Christ came... That we might be justified by faith. So when Christ came and people began to put their faith in him, they were then 
justified. Paul says no one can be justified by keeping the works of the law. No one can be declared righteous or to be in right relationship with God by following the law. But they can be justified and declared righteous in God's sight by putting their faith in Jesus Christ, the perfect law keeper. So there's a new thing happening. This is essentially a new epic in history, which we'll say more about in just a minute. So the faith, the the law as a guardian and disciplinarian, now it, it no longer can play that role because Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled the law. Now, right relationship with God is established. The only way that it could ever be established is by putting our faith in Jesus. So, now we want to move down into verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 4. The, the passage in our lectionary today it cuts off some of the passage, which is fine. You can go and read it, it but it picks up in verse 4 of chapter 4. And Paul says, but when the set time had fully come. Everybody say set time. Set time. So God had set a time on his calendar, which wasn't, doesn't look like our calendar. It's the calendar he only has the details of. And God had a set time that would fully come at some point in history. And the word for fully come, pleroma in Greek is a fun word to say. It means that which fulfills or completes. So there's a time that comes into history and it breaks into history and it fulfills and it completes something. It's the end of the period of the law as a disciplinarian of God's people. And now it is a new epic in history, which is that God's people are governed by, in, in, and through Christ Jesus. So when the time had fully come, what happened? What we celebrate Friday night, yesterday, today, for the next 10 or 11 days, the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnate God-man. So the birth of Jesus is a profound turning point in history. A, new, a, a whole new age has dawned. Okay? This, is, this is what Paul is getting at. The, the, the actual, the, like, it's almost as if the fabric of the cosmos, the nature of reality, if you will, there's a, there's a, there's a tectonic plate shift. In how we are able to relate to God. Because Christ is now here. The God, man, the eternal son of God in the flesh. Inviting us to come to God through him. So heaven, again, I always use this language. Heaven has invaded earth in the God, man, Jesus Christ. To open up the way for people who were hellbound to come into heaven. That's the gospel. <laughs> That's good news. We should be rejoicing. I know we're all tired, Christmas celebrations and all that, but hopefully this good word from uh, Scripture is going to wake you up this morning. So heaven invades earth to do something about our imprisonment to the law, to break chains, not to break the law. Jesus said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. I didn't come to nullify the law, but in order to fulfill it. But the Christ comes to break the chains of our situation, which is that we were unable to obey God because of the brokenness and sinfulness of our hearts. And it's only Christ that can change that. Human law abiding cannot change the human heart. So, 
this what's happening in this situation it says that christ was born under the law he was born under the under the veil of flesh he was born into our situation so it's kind of like if you think about like a like a hostage situation there's marines and there's a group of marines and a group of uh, foreign terrorists takes them hostage and it's like a special ops navy seal getting dropped into that hostage situation on a covert mission to rescue them he comes in and identifies with their situation actually goes into enemy to occupied territory to to, to get them on a special operation to rescue them. Another way you could look at it is that God is sending his representative into the orphanage to declare good news that there's a father who has enough resources to, to, to adopt all the orphans. And so that's what's happening in the person and the work of Jesus. And notice that he doesn't break into the world and say, you miserable law-breaking wretches, what did I tell you at Mount Sinai to do? Instead, he says... Follow me. That's it. Follow me. Don't be afraid. Follow me. Come to me. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry for righteousness, come to me. You will be satisfied. Jesus is so good. He's so gentle. He's not a disciplinarian. He didn't come to chide us. He didn't come to condemn, but so that the world could be saved through him. And so the Son of God enters our desperate situation to rescue us. He says this, I'm getting you out of this situation. I don't know, I'm paraphrasing. Jesus didn't say these words. But essentially his message was, I've come to get you out of this situation. I've not come to nullify God's law. It will always remain because it's a part of his nature and character. But I've come to rescue you out of your desperate situation is that you are enslaved to the power of sin and the power of sin condemns you. The power of sin in your heart is what makes you actually worthy of God's condemnation. But I've come to rescue you from that situation. Now, the question is, how does he do that? How does a human being do that? Verse five says that he came to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. So to be redeemed means to be purchased from slavery. What was our slavery? Sin and death. We were enslaved to it. There was no hope for us. We were desperately trying to keep the law and then realizing that we couldn't do it. And so God's condemnation hung over us like a cloud. Well, what's to be done about this? God himself says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to come and deal with the situation. I'm going to rescue people out of this situation. I'm going to adopt children out of the orphanage of my own accord and with my own resources, my own grace, my own mercy, not because of anything they've done. Okay, so... We go from, in putting our faith in Christ, we go from being slaves, get this, to being sons. All of a sudden, you're, you're going from being a slave of fear of judgment and condemnation, which would be rightfully deserved, but you go from that now to being adopted into the family of God and having the status as a, as a son. So this is where Christian believers, I think sometimes we don't have enough confidence about who we are and approaching God. We still sort of have this sort of guilt and fear hanging over us because we know that we still mess up. But God says, no longer do I view you through the lens of your mistakes and your messing up, but I view you through the, the beauty and perfection of my son. So you're able to come to me even when you mess up really, really bad. 
But the other thing is that when when we put our faith in Jesus, it tells us that the spirit of the son comes to dwell in us is that he actually breaks the bondages of sin over our heart. So no longer are we trying to obey the law out of our own willpower, but it's Christ in us. So obeying God is not a matter of trying harder and trying harder and trying harder. It's a matter of what Paul says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's considering yourself dead because that's truly the case of you in heaven. You're dead to sin in heaven where your real true self is and you're alive to God in Christ Jesus. So when you, Christian believer, are battling with sinful habits, battling with sinful attitudes, battling with sinful mindsets, don't say, oh, I need more willpower to get out of this situation. God's probably so mad at me right now. Run to God and say, Father, help me to rest in the righteousness of Jesus. And by his power in me, I will overcome this. But even even in the process of learning to overcome this habit, this attitude, this mindset, this this uh, this whatever it is, even in the process, I know that I'm already justified and declared righteous in the courts of heaven. So there's no fear. You're working towards sanctification in a holy life and you're working. That's all being worked out in your life as a son or daughter. You're not working your way towards being a son or daughter. You are a son or daughter. And so you're becoming more and more like the brother who adopt, who who came so that the father could adopt you. Does that make sense? So battling the flesh, battling sin is less a, a matter of willpower and more a matter of resting in the identity that has already been established for me in Jesus in which is lived out and experienced by his indwelling Holy Spirit. So when you're struggling with sin and, and things like that, the answer is don't give more attention to the sin and the battle with it is turn your attention to him. Because the more beautiful he becomes to you through your gazing at him, your meditating on him through his word, spending time with him, the more that you do that, the less appeal everything else is going to have. Christianity, I love, I've said this quote before, it's, le, it's not primarily about behaving, but about beholding. It's about beholding the beauty of Jesus. And behavior changes happen because of the transformation in our hearts when we're beholding him regularly. So there's, I, I asked the question, how is it, what qualified Jesus to actually bring us into the family of God to get us out of the orphanage, to get us out of the hostage situation, to get us out of prison, what actually qualified him? And there's two things. There's two things that he did that we could not do for ourselves and that we did not have to do. The first is that he lived in perfect alignment with the Father's heart and nature. That's really what it is to obey the law. It's to live in perfect alignment with the Father's heart and nature. Because the law of God flows from his nature. Something is evil because it contradicts the nature of God. Something is good because it's in alignment with the beautiful nature of God. There's a, defi- there's a theological definition of the law for you. Isn't that awesome? So it's not just something God was like, ah, oh, what laws do I want to make for the world it was that it, his law, when he articulates his law, it's an, it's an emanation, if you will, from his own being. He says, do this because that's in alignment with my character, and we can have fellowship together when you do that. But when you do this stuff, you're out of alignment with my character, and it separates you from me. So, Jesus lived 
the first human being ever to live in perfect alignment with the Father's heart and nature. Remember, he says, I only do what I see the Father doing. That means I only obey the law perfectly. I only do what I see the Father doing. That's such a more exciting way, if you will, to think about obedience than, okay, what are the rules again? Oh, I can't do that. Shoot. Oh, shoot. i got to confess that. Right? It, it, law abiding is like walking in fellowship and closeness with the Father. It's so much more exciting than that. But Jesus obeyed every nudge from the Holy Spirit. Every conviction that he had to do something, to say something, to not say something, he obeyed it. He refused to have even a trace of greedy desire for wealth or possessions. He refused to look at women with any sort of lust in his eyes. He stood on and spoke truth with zeal and uncompromising conviction. Everything the Father told him to say, he did not allow the fear of man to get in the way. He always chose to give rather than to receive. It's why he could say, all of this perfect law abiding, is why he could say, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I have perfectly reflected his nature by obeying it, by obeying his law. So the first thing that Jesus did was lived in perfect alignment with the Father's heart and nature. The second thing that he did on our behalf so that we didn't have to do is that he bore the curse of the law. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In, in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 27, we read this. Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. Okay? So lawbreakers are under God's curse. That's, a, that, that's that desperate situation, right, of being in custody, of being in prison. Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law. Now, Jesus upheld the words of this law, but he took the curse because somebody had to take it because there was a curse hanging over us as lawbreakers. And somebody had to take it. And the person who took it was the only person who didn't deserve it. The, 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 the law in Deuteronomy also says, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So a person who was hung up on a tree was considered, that must be a person under God's curse. So when you see Jesus hanging on a tree bleeding and dying. You, the Jews would have looked and said, look, that's somebody under God's curse. And so what was happening in those moments on the cross for you and for me was that he was bearing a curse that he did not deserve. He was making himself a substitution for you and for me. This is why St. Paul says to the Corinthians that his only sermon worth preaching is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's where redemption comes from. That's where redemption flows from. 
our freedom from slavery, our freedom from the power of sin, our freedom from being orphans who need to be adopted, our freedom from loneliness, despair, discouragement, depression, hopelessness, addiction, all of those things, the freedom flows from the blood that he shed on the cross for us because he bore the curse, he bore the judgment, he bore the punishment so that we will never have to bear it. Hallelujah. (laughs) Thank you. Verse 6. Now it says this, because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Notice that he says, because you are sons. Because you are his sons, by his work on the cross, by, by the son's work on the cross, and putting faith in him, the son spirit, not S-U-N, that sounds very pagan, the S-O-N spirit, the spirit of the son comes to make his dwelling place in you. His nature, Jesus' nature, comes to live in you. What is his nature? He's a perfect, God-honoring, God-loving, God-exalting, Father-praising, Father-listening, Father-exalting human being. And his nature comes to live in you. That's how the power of sin is broken in our lives. That's how the power of disobedience is broken in our lives. That's how the power of the fear of what people think about us when we share the gospel with them is broken in our lives. It's because the spirit of the son dwells in us and he was perfectly obedient. And when I'm actually yielded to him and his spirit, these things start happening. I start getting freedom. I start growing into boldness and it's a process. But that process of growing into becoming more and more like Jesus is, is simply learning to be more and more yielded to his spirit that lives in us. Learning to recognize his voice, what, what it sounds like when it stirs in our hearts and being obedient. But doing all that, knowing that we are already sons and daughters. The gospel is so good. It's such good news. It's because you're saved, not depending on where you are in this process. This process is actually existing because you're already saved. This process of growing into deeper and deeper yieldedness and obedience to the Father. Because you are already saved. And I absolutely believe, so that I don't misconstrue anything, I absolutely believe that the process of increasing yieldedness to the Father is required, not suggested. Jesus spoke of obedience Over and over and over again. What did he say over and over? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. That's directly from the Father. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. You will obey the nudges. You will learn to obey conviction from the Spirit. You will learn to yield up the things that you know are hindering your relationship with me. And friends, this is why that that the reason that I am so sad that the person and work of the Holy Spirit gets so neglected in the church today. Because it's the presence and power of Jesus in us. That's who the Holy Spirit is. He brings the presence and power of Jesus in us to purify us, to to help us increase and grow, to grow up into maturity, to become more and more like Jesus. 
And we need not just his uh, moral inclinations to, uh, to not fall prey to lust and pride and greed and all of those things, but we need his gifts and his power and his fire to be able to minister to each other and to make the gospel known in the world. And so many churches, they emphasize, and rightly so, the, the, more, the, the, transforming, the moral transformative power of the Holy Spirit to, to, to help you you know, not commit adultery or steal and things like that, and rightly so. But what so many churches don't emphasize is the power in you that actually makes you look outside of you to accomplish the mission of God around you in the lives of others. So think about this for a minute before we close. If you were an orphan, you know that I always have to, like, to hammer this mission thing, right? There's a reason that I do that. There's a reason that I want us to be passionate about this as a church, because Jesus was passionate about it. But if you were an orphan or somebody in a foster care system and you met an adoptive parent who had a limitless heart of love and resources riches and you knew that that parent expressed to you how he wanted to adopt as many orphans as he possibly could and receive them into his home would you lock yourself up in your new bedroom and play with your new toys for the rest of your life or would you run back to the orphanage and begin to proclaim You can all be adopted! Hallelujah! Can I yell once in a while? Would you run back to the orphanage and proclaim, I have a father and he he wants to be your father too. He loves you. He loves you so much. He sent his own son to die for your sin so that you could be adopted into his family. See, we're not excited enough about that place that we have in the Father's heart. He wants us to be more excited about it. Not so that we can lock ourselves in our bedroom and play with our new toys, but so that we can run out and tell the world that the doors are open right now. Friends, we're living in the season of mercy. I preached this on Christmas Eve. We're living in the season where God is extending His hand out to His worst enemies and rebels. But that season will come to an end and there will come a day when the kingdom of God, it has a door that can and will be shut, finally and forever. And I don't want any of us to regret that we, 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 we spent almost every day of our life just only enjoying the, the freedom of the, of the adopted father's family and his house to ourselves, but never invited anybody else to be a part of it. I want us to be a church that lives and breathes this stuff. That are just a people that just Jesus is on our lips flowing to those around us and just making that invitation, at least letting people know that the offer's on the table. And the spirit of adoption, I think Paul, yeah, Paul actually calls the Holy Spirit in another passage, the spirit of adoption. He, the, the Holy Spirit, he's the instrument by which the adoption happens. And the spirit of adoption lives in you and will testify to the Father's goodness and power and love. He will testify through signs, wonders, miracles, prophetic words, 
healing. He will testify through the boldness of your witness. He will testify by giving you the supernatural ability to do things like open your home and welcome people in, believers and unbelievers alike, so that the ministry of the gospel can be worked out in your own home. It's a spiritual gift called hospitality. There's a spiritual gift of giving. Some of you have been given the spiritual gift of generosity to give financially to things to advance the gospel. It's because the spirit of adoption lives in us and wants the world to know that there's a God who wants every single spiritual orphanage to be emptied out. Amen? Even the train says amen to that. I love, I'm going to close with this verse because uh, it's just so good. The words of our Lord to his own disciples and thus to us. And he promised them that the spirit of truth was coming to be with them and live in them. And he says, he's going to live with you and he will be in you. And then Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have come to us. You are with us by the work of your spirit. You've not left us as orphans, wandering around in the muck and mire of sin and hopelessness and despair but you have rescued us by shedding your blood. Lord, we want to be a people who who not only know you in our own hearts, but live out your life in private and in public. A life that was always about giving rather than receiving. Making known the Father's heart to the world around us. So, Lord, we ask that as we continue to to gaze at you this morning, to adore you, Jesus, to, to give you the worship that is due your name, that we ask that what you would impart to us, Lord, is the Father's heart for orphans, for widows, for those who are spiritually in need of adoption. Lord, we love you. We can only do it by your power in us. So teach us to live a life that is always becoming more and more yielded to you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Let's stand this morning.